Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. The podcast took a break last week because I was up in the mountains, but we're back. This week and next, I have a two-part interview that I'm really excited to share. If you're a windsurfer, you may know the name Barry Spanier. Barry's been sailing since the 50s, but he began making windsurfer sails in the late 70s, just as the sport was starting. His sail designs have been used to set world speed records in windsurfing and have powered sailors to world championships. And he's currently building a really uniquely designed sailboat with a scow bow, a very uh, flat bow, at the Berkeley Marine Center. He has his hands in a number of other interesting projects. But in this, the first of two episodes, I talked to Barry about his sailing adventures before he got into windsurfing. Back in the 60s, he built a ferro-cement boat by hand here in San Francisco and then sailed it through the South Pacific. We talk all about that and the crazy life-changing adventures that ensued from that trip, including a shipwreck off of New Zealand in which Barry almost lost his life. But I want you to hear that story directly from Barry, so I'll leave the intro there. I do want to mention that Barry and his wife, Samantha, met me for the interview at Fred's, a popular brunch place in Sausalito. It's been there forever, but we sat outside and you'll hear some of the background noise, other people chatting, some of the traffic and dishes, but uh, I don't think it's too distracting. So without further ado, here's part one of the two-part interview with Barry Spanier. Well, Barry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, we're sitting outside here. Couldn't be more appropriate at Fred's place in Sausalito, <laughs> which That's you said right. you used to come to. Came here. We lived on the schooner Fairweather in the harbor, 58-foot Murray Peterson schooner. And, you know, we were Sausalito citizens back then, me and my young wife. And we dreamed about boats. We wanted to have a boat somehow, whatever it was. We wanted to uh, buy one and organize it and sail away. You know, it was 1967 and everything was crazy. And uh, you know, I just wanted to go sail away. I'd been sailing since I was 10 years old. And, and all I wanted to do was sail. You decided that building a boat was the way to go. Yeah, actually, she decided. I really didn't think it was a good idea, <laughs> but... She convinced you. Well, yeah, she encouraged me enough to where, oh, well, this could be okay. And originally we were going to build an Atkin Eric, which was 32 feet. This guy who worked in the sail off with me said, well, you know, how, this other guy I know, Peter Minkwitz, and Peter was a surveyor and worked at Svensson's Marine forever. So Peter uh, had graduated from Berkeley and, and he was ready to do something. And so he said, well, let's, let's build a boat. So now we had three of us. So he said, but we should build a 38-footer instead of a 32-footer. Oh yeah, no problem, you know. And we didn't have any money. We had 
couple thousand dollars saved, you know. And so that started it, and we bought bought the plans from Motor Boating Magazine for $35, and then we spent months doing drawings and converting the designs to uh, be built out of ferro-cement, so the hulls could be ferro-cement. Once it was ready to go, we just got into it and rented a little lot next to the Strauss-Trunion Bascule Bridge on China Basin Creek there, across from where the new baseball stadium is. Uh-huh. And we rented this lot from the Port Authority for $36 a month and, <laughs> and moved in. And, and when you say rest, moved in, you moved into where? Well, we were living in a house out in the Sunset District, you know, but we moved into the lot. We found an old 8x8x8 eight by eight by eight container that we could put the tools in, and then we started organizing the three strongbacks to put up the boats, and, and that was it. We began the project and then just worked on it every day we could. And both of us had jobs. You know, probably earning two or three dollars an hour, and my my wife was a parts person at Ellisbrook Chevrolet, and I worked for Hank Jots building sails, and we just went to work every day, and then we went back to the boatyard and worked on the boat until you couldn't see anymore, you know. And slept in the shipping container. No, not yet. We probably went for a few months, six or eight months that we were just working on the boat. And once the hull was done and we rolled the hull over, that was when we moved in the container because we needed more money, you know, and we didn't want to spend the $75 a month on rent. <laughs> well, this is all recounted in your book, The Bear Chronicles, which is a wonderful account of the building of the boat and your whole trip, which we'll get to through the, the South Pacific. Um, and your letters from that time. Right. Well, I, I wrote letters when we actually finished the boat and sailed away. We started writing letters to my mother, you know, because she was very supportive of the whole thing. She let me fill her house with uh, diesel motors and chain and hardware and everything, you know. So we had a place to store and we had a somewhere where we could go and shower and clean up and get a meal once in a while and. But when we were living in the container, we were, it was rough. I mean, we had no money, so we ate rice and beans and whatever we could find and did a lot of dumpster diving on the way home from work. Um, it, was, it was the 60s, you know. <laughs> how long did that last? When, how we long did it take to the build the boat? We started the boat in 69 and launched it in... I think it was 73, and then we spent 74 getting it rigged and sailing, and then we took off and went to San Diego and opened a sail loft in San Diego for a year, and then left there, just packed everything up and see you later. Heading which direction? Went to Mexico, spent about six months in Mexico, and then... And we were going to go to Costa Rica, but then uh, my wife thought she was pregnant. And so, oh, well, let's sail to Hawaii. Like, oh. <laughs> so, so we sailed to Hawaii, 33 days. And uh, 
when we got over there, we got really comfortable and, you know, living in Lahaina and Maui County and sailing all around the Hawaiian Islands. And, and then she went to an astrologer who told her that, you know, my moon was in pliers and hers was in Venus and she had to leave me because I wasn't right for her. And literally, she just packed up and left wow. after 10 years. So I was on my own figuring out what to do next and had a friend who wanted some sails built in Tahiti and I organized the whole thing and got materials and loaded them on my boat and took off. That must have been quite a shock. There was a lot about that era that lent itself to that sort of thinking. Mm -hmm. She literally climbed out the back room window with a little bag of stuff and got on my motorcycle and we drove away. That's how our life together started. And uh, didn't tell her parents where she was for a long time. And there was a lot going on around them that you just, it was all new uh, to everybody. A lot of psychedelics. We were in the middle of it. We lived in the deepest part of the Haight-Ashbury and the in the highest part of the whole thing. <laughs> Boats weren't on our mind that much then. But once we got into it, we really got into it and we just lived for it. I mean, we would work on the thing for months without stopping. Just go to work, go back to the boat, work till you couldn't sleep, you know, think any more about it and sweep up the shavings and unroll the mat and go to sleep and get up and go to work. You said you'd been sailing since you were 10, so you enjoyed that aspect of, a, of it, but what was it that gave you that drive? Was it dreams of the South Pacific? Was it having your own boat? I think it was a lot of GTFH, get the fuck out of here. Mm -hmm. You know, I we were we were just surrounded by this whole thing. I mean, the country was in a bad way back then. You know, yeah. there was rioting and political discord and the war wasn't over yet. And, you know, there was a lot of, I, we just didn't want to be here anymore. Yeah. We wanted to see what was going on in other places. And the, I mean, I had an El Toro when I was a little kid. Uh -huh. And uh, that was my first boat. I saved my money and I bought an El Toro. And then I got into the, keeping it was at Lake Merced in uh -huh. the shed there. Sure. So I could go to Lake Merced from where I lived on my bicycle and I'd ride through the zoo and get out to the lake and put my boat in the water and just sail all afternoon by myself. You know, I would be imagining how cool it would be to go to some place you had never seen before and I would put the boat in through the reeds and pull it up on the beach and just be in a different thing. And, you know, it was an adventure all the time and that's what I was looking for. And, you know, the ocean in those days was challenging. And um, Well, there was no GPS. You must have been doing celestial. Oh, yeah, totally. Everything was real navigation. My boat didn't have an electrical system at all. It didn't have any batteries. I hand cranked the diesel, kerosene running lights. The only batteries we had on board were in the Zenith transoceanic radio so we could get time signals. And there was no head. It was rough. 
but it was always fun, you know, and challenging. And, and you know, you'd be laying in some place anchored and thinking, God, you know, multimillionaires live right there and I'm in their front yard and I don't have a dime. <laughs> But you have the same backyard. <laughs> the same front yard. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it. and then once you get farther along and you get into the South Pacific, it's then it becomes a completely different world. You know, Hawaii's, it's a vicious place to cruise. Yeah. It's really windy. There's not very many comfortable anchorages. There's few safe harbors and no welcome you know, there's no welcome. It's just like, maybe you're going to leave soon, or how can we make you leave? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of attitude, you know. Just, just talking to somebody who's saying that the wait list for slips is just unbelievably long. Oh, yeah. Ten years. Yeah. You know, people just put their name on and pay every year. We've been on ten years, right? At least wow. ten years. So. Well, yeah. Um, We'll get to why you're on the wait list for a slip in in a, in a bit here. But first, uh, I want to finish up with Seminole, which was right. the Seminole, yep. ferro-cement boat. Ferro-cement, but the, the deck and the structure and the interior were, they were like a wooden boat. Had yeah. deck beams and a proper deck and, you know, Port Orford Cedar cabin sides. And it was all, you know, a proper, looked like a wooden boat. Yeah. Yeah. I even went to Kettenberg in uh, San Diego when I got to San Diego because I needed work. So I had all my tools on board. I, you know, there was an electric built the boat with, and and I made an appointment and brought the boat to Kettenberg's and pulled it up and tied it in a slip there and went and got the yard foreman and hey, come on, you know, you can see that I built this boat. I mean, I did the iron work, I did the rigging, I built the sails, I built the spars, and this is my work. So we're sitting down below, my wife's made him some tea, and he's looking all around, and he says, oh, this is really beautiful, you know, what's it planked with? And I said, Portland number five. <laughs> and the guy, I think it insulted him or something, and, and that was it, I didn't get a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, your skills, though, did serve you very well as you were cruising. You were oh, totally. To, so talk about that, yeah. how you were able to stop well, and work I and make money. Mostly worked as a sailmaker. You know, I had, um, I had a sewing machine on board. It was electric and required being hooked up. But, uh, you know, you could easily make money. It was no problem. Like in Puerto Vallarta, I made friends with two guys from Canada, and they had large motor sailors, and and they said, well, how would you like to build us some awnings? You know, we have the material. And I said, well, that's great. And they said, well, let's go anchor over in, in um, La Cruz. You know, oh, okay. And it was a great place to surf. And so we went over, and they... We anchored and they rafted up and one guy had a big diesel generator and I set up my sewing machine and the other guy's cockpit and we laid out all the stuff on their decks and built them a couple of nice awnings over, you know, a week or 10 days and they fed us and paid us and, you know, we surfed in the afternoon and 
And then they, we're all done with the job and I'm still set up. And he says, hey, would you mind if I put on the net that, that you're here, uh, you know, you'll do sail work or whatever. And I said, no, that's fine. And so we hung out for three or four days more. And here comes this trail of boats from Puerto Vallarta that wanted sails fixed and things repaired. And word got out quick. Yeah. Well, they radioed, you know. Yeah. And so we made more money in Acapulco. We worked and and Tahiti. We were I worked a lot there, you know. So. And you actually lived for a time in where in Tahiti. Tahiti. Yeah. Did you know? I stayed there for nine months the first time. Hmm. And this was nineteen nineteen seventy seven. Seventy seven. Okay. My mate who sailed with me to Tahiti, Patrick Humbert. He had friends down there because he'd lived there a long time, and he lived on Ahe with Bernard as well. And Bernard Motissier. Motissier, yeah. yeah. So he said, well, look, you know, we want to build these sails. Uh, let's get a hold of Ingrid, and he knew this lady, Ingrid Cohen, and, and she had this wonderful little place out in the nowheresville, you know, it's like 10 miles from the end of the road, and beautiful anchorage right out in front and a river running by and nobody. I mean, <laughs> you had to walk a couple of kilometers to get to see another person. So we lived out there and built a whole set of sails for the Yall Jada. It was an Alden Yall, 57 foot Alden Yall. And we built them a new working jib and a Genoa and a main and a mizzen and something else i don't remember but yeah we're, we're looking at a picture little, in picture the little, little yellow house little uh, yellow house uh, in your book here yeah and so she let us she says oh yeah you can take out a wall you can whatever you want and so we built a stone pathway down to the river and we had a place where we collected water and we planted food right away so we had a little garden and mm. And the generator was way far away, so whenever we had to sew, we just fired up the generator for an hour or two and sewed, and then the rest we did by hand. Have you been back to this little yellow house? Yeah, maybe in 1985, I think I went down there, but I haven't been back since. Yeah. It's very hard to get to. So from Tahiti, then, you headed down farther south, eventually making it to Yeah, I went to... You know, down the chain, Cook Islands and Tonga. I spent quite a bit of time in Tonga. That was really wonderful. Around the island of Eua and Nukuolofa. And then sailed from Tonga to New Zealand pretty easily with a you know, young fellow that I picked up in Rarotonga. When I got to New Zealand, I looked for work all over. Same thing, just, you know, it was tough to find work, and especially... You know, you're an American. You can't work in a in a foreign country. Yeah. And uh, we found this job repairing this giant schooner. What was the name of that schooner? Constellation. The Constellation. That's right. Yeah, and that started kind of oddly, because we were in the Bay of Islands. It was around New Year's, and we had gone there specifically because it was a good place to anchor and very protected and. And I got up there, and we knew this fellow, Michael Moorhart, and he had a big plank-on-edge English catch. I can't remember the name of it, but, you know, it was a big boat. And he was looking to get it worked on. So we checked in with him, and then 
while we were there, hey, well, what's this big schooner here, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so, oh, that's the constellation. Yeah, I remember her. She came, she came into my loft in San Diego, you know, the woman who owned the boat. Right? Her name okay. was Roberta Erb. And I remember I threw her out because she kept wanting to smoke cigarettes. You know? <laughs> anyway, so her son, who was about 17, and his buddy, Chris Haig, this Poindexter Herb and Christopher Haig, they were taking care of the boat. She'd gone away and left these two teenage kids to mine this 76-foot boat, and the engine was dead. So, you know, here's this boat, no motor. Wow. So we got on board. Hey, guys, you know, me and Jeffrey Bourne, my, my sailing mate, and God, this thing's a mess. You guys ought to clean it up, you know. Here, let me, let's show you how to take care of this, you know. So we got on there and organized it all and got it all cleaned up and everything. And, and then one night we were in town in this bar, the Duke of Marlboro, and hey, well, what about sailing the Constellation? Oh, no, my mom had never let us, you know. Oh, well, don't worry, it'll be okay. And, and it had a pretty nice dinghy with a 25-horse outboard. And don't worry about a thing. And we went around the bar, and, and uh, I, I had just met this Kiwi girl, and she had a couple of Kiwi girlfriends. And before we know, we had like eight or ten people. Come on, <laughs> let's go. So the next morning, we got all these people on board and got the thing off the hook. Hadn't had the anchor up for a long time, wow. you know. It took a while to get it going, and and then we sailed away. And we just sailed out around Cape Breton and went up the coast and found a little anchorage and hung out for a while, and then sailed it back and anchored it. Luckily, a couple days before Roberta got back, you know, when she got back, here the boats all cleaned up, and down below was all organized. And, and they said, oh, well, those guys did that, you know. And she said, oh, I know him. <laughs> <laughs> he threw me out of his sail loft. <laughs> but she hired us to basically rebuild the boat. So That's great. Turned in a whole adventure. We sailed the boat south to Tauranga, where there was a shipyard big enough to handle it. And uh, I sailed, and, you know, we accompanied each other down there. Mm -hmm. And then we got down there, we tore it all apart and rebuilt it. Wow. And, and that's what hung us up, is we got involved fixing her boat. And I had been rebuilding my boat at the mm -hmm. same time, because I'd been sailing it for f four years without really doing much to it. And right. It needed to be painted and needed a lot of maintenance. And so I hauled it out and just left it out of the water. And we lived in it on the hard. We just kept getting later and later and later in the year because we had to finish this schooner. And it was late in the year, you know, that's wintertime down there. Right. And finally we got it together and, and we left on a glorious day and two days later we were sunk. So, so that is a story in itself. <laughs> Tell yeah. us that story. Okay. Both but, losing the boat and then trying to recover it. Yeah. Well, when, when we left, the, 
we were seeing a weather fax. This was like weather fax was a new thing. And, there, and we were tied up next to this tuna boat and the guy was very friendly and feeding us and we were hanging out. Oh, you're getting ready to leave. Well, look at this, I got my weather fax. Mm. Check this out, oh, the beautiful weather. Well, the weather fax printed a page. But the thing that was bad was off the page. <laughs> oh, no. That's not so good. we didn't know that the thing that was bad was out there. And when we sailed away, it was a lovely day. And, uh, and then it just the weather just kind of deteriorated over the next 36 hours. And by the following evening, it was gray. And we hadn't had sight of land for a long time. And, and you know, you're navigating with a chart. and. You got a walker log over the stern that's mm -hmm. telling you how far you're going, sort of. And you're doing DR. Yeah, that's it. And you don't see anything. You don't. You're just making a line on a chart. You don't know that that's where you are. So, as as the night went on, it got windier and nastier and and uh, raining hard. And and Jeffrey was really seasick. So I said, no, you know, we'll just heave to and. You go down below and get on the cabin sole and just be in your foul weather gear. So if you have to go and do anything, I'm going to get in my bunk. And, and we left this woman on watch. And I had known her and sailed with her. And she had a lot of sailing experience. So I, I didn't have any question of leaving her on watch. We were just sitting there hove to, you know. All you're doing is keeping an eye out. And then, you know, all of a sudden, crunch you just the boat just took a big heave and crashed and and iris is very very we're on the rocks and that was it we were on the rocks and so i ran up on deck you know naked out of bed and, and um, tried to turn the wheel i started the motor because she didn't know how to start the motor, one of those things that, you know, you don't think about, right? And um, got the boat going, but then the, the wheel, the tiller was broken because probably the, something had happened with the rudder and the rocks. And so I got off the stern of the boat and my partner was running the, the throttle and I stood on the self-steering vane arm. You know, there was like a trim tab rudder on my rudder and I stood on that and and he gunned it and I drove the boat off standing on the rudder Wow! until it got off far enough where the motor quit because oh. there was water already over the motor and so you would hold them I uh, had pretty big holes you know football size holes on both sides of the hull you know maybe Two or three on one side and one big one on the other side. The cement had cracked? What? Oh, yeah, it crushes it. But it didn't, like, break a big hole like a window. It just crushed the mortar and all the, you know, metal fibers all still there. But there's just water coming in, like, really coming in. And minutes are going by, and the boat's already, you know, knee-deep inside, and Iris, the, the woman who was on watch, she grabbed her backpack and a diving light, a life jacket, and the other woman was in the cockpit pumping on the bilge pump. Not doing a lot of good, I'm sure. <laughs> but she was never been to sea before. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, 
it was her second day out on the ocean. Here yeah. we were sinking in the middle of the night in a gale. And not sure where you were. I had no idea. Yeah. You know, what's this? You know, what's happening? Why are we uh, on the rocks? And and it was winter time. Winter, yeah, dead winter, dead winter. And fortunately, the wind was kind of northeast strong, so it was not freezing cold. That came later. And then as the front passed, then it turned southwest, and it just got bitter cold, too. You know. I went up on deck and threw our anchor out, and I could feel the anchor set while the boat was, you know, it was still floating. Secured it, and I turned around, and my partner's back on the back deck trying to get our little survival valise loose and I could just see him his, he's on the stern and pretty soon he's up to his knees and and he just jumped over the side and and then I just jumped over the side and and uh, the woman that was in the cockpit she she went down with the boat she was trapped behind the dodger and went down with the boat and probably took her she must have been 30 feet underwater quickly before she got loose. And, and she was swimming up through all the tangle of, you know, whatever's in your rig, right? You know, halyards and whatever. She told us afterwards, she said, oh, I saw the light up there. I saw the masthead light. And said, no, you didn't. There was no masthead light. <laughs> so... <laughs> She swam in the right direction. Yeah, she just went in the right direction. But she made it up, and the two women were separated from us. Iris had the diving light, you know, a battery-powered diving light. And Jeffrey and I got together, and, and so Iris was flashing the light on these cliffs. And all that was there was these cliffs, just rock walls, all the way as far as you could see with the light. And so me and Jeffrey would swim up to the wall and, and the waves would pitch and, you know, you would get so close and then see if there was anything there and there was nothing there and then you'd backpedal and get away from the wall and the wave would smash against the cliff. And, and so we just kept swimming along the cliffs until there was like a projection of collapsed rubble or whatever. And, and pretty, you know, substantial little mound of stuff. I just rode a wave right up onto this little mound and Jeffrey went over into the washing machine and got all thrashed around. Oh. And, and he got out okay, he was a little cut up, but he got out and then I helped drag him out. And then the women found us with the light and they came, swam over and we pulled them out. So now you're freezing cold. Half on, naked. Half naked sitting on rocks in the middle of the night with a, a, a sunken boat and, and cliffs in front. Cliffs. Yeah, that's it. We Doesn't were, seem like you're in much better predicament. Well, we were really cold. <laughs> you do the huddle, right? Mm -hmm. We sat, we had whatever we had. You know, there was a couple of life jackets, so we sp split them open and two people sat on a life jacket because it was like uh, volcanic rubble it was really sharp rocks you know and and then what clothes we had we used them around our shoulders and we put our heads together and our arms around each other and our knees together and we made a little warm circle and just shivered 
And every once in a while, I'd take the diving light and do SOS out into the blackness. You know, there was nothing out there. You couldn't see anything. And in the morning, you know, as it got to be light, we could see, wow, there's just cliffs, nothing but cliffs. And what was your state of mind at this point? I don't know. Shock, I guess, really. I mean, you're just, you're so focused on, okay, what are you going to do to live? Mm-hmm. That was literally, you know, we knew it was, we were screwed if we didn't get warm. So we got back in the water and went along the face of the cliffs and there was a, uh, like a giant cave, maybe like a lava tube or something, but it was a big opening. In the front of the opening, it was kind of like a sandy beach, uh, a little bit, you know, and then as you went in, it was all full of all this driftwood rubble and, not, not very big logs, but a lot of just jumble of tree limbs and logs and whatever had been driven into this hole. And we thought, well, if we get in there, maybe we can find something that's dry and rub sticks together and, you know, whatever you're doing, it's just desperate. Mm-hmm. And we kept climbing in, looking for maybe the spot, and then all of a sudden you could see light on the other end, right? So we climbed through the cave and when we got to the other side it was opening into this other little bay and um, some of our fruit and vegetables was floating in the water and there was mussels and oysters and so we smashed them and ate them and there was fresh water coming out of a little trickling thing out of the cave wall and we drank water and still didn't you know, no chance of a fire or anything. It was all just wet, so cold by now. I mean, really, the wind had turned southwest and it was just arctic cold. Okay, what do we do next? Well, we'll climb the cliff. There was kind of an animal trail, like not really a, a real trail, but you know, you could climb hand over hand I climbed and climbed and everybody's climbing with me and we're just going up the side of this thing and it could have been 200 feet maybe, something like that. And, and when I got up to the top, I'm, it was like looking over and there was this amphitheater, a little valley and one house with smoke coming out of the chimney. <laughs> and who? <laughs> So we got up and all four of us got up, you know, over the edge of the cliff and... That's quite a moment. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite a moment. (laughs) What, what's, I mean, I'm sure you've lived that moment over many, many times in your head. What goes through, what was going through your head? Yeah, well, you know, it was all starting to feel like a movie, really. Like, what the hell's going on here? And then this guy, barefoot, with two dogs, comes running up the hill, you know. Where do you blokes come from? My dogs only bark when there's people, you know. How'd you get here? And so I pointed out into the bay and said, oh, well, we, my boat's on the bottom out there. And he said, oh, God, you know, come down the house. And, We'll warm you up, and that was it. We got to meet Clive and Sarah Abbott. Wow. And um, 
you know, they were living out there for six years, caretaking this place. And, uh, you know, they were elder. She was probably in her uh, 60s and him too, but he was incredibly fit, like a powerful bull of a guy. And she was frail and gray. and and But she took care of the house and kept it together. And A one-room house? Was it, or no, there was... A bedroom and then like a little storeroom that had a bunk bed and a single bed, pretty tight fit. And then there was um, a kitchen, living room kind of little thing. They had a wood stove and they had a generator they ran in the evening to, to power up their radio so they could communicate for a little while. But they were isolated, you know. But they brought you in. They brought us in. You know, it was in the morning like maybe nine o'clock in the morning or something and fed us tea and toast and let us take a hot bath. Uh, you know, they had to fire up the wood stove to make the hot water and we made a hot bath and we all got a hot bath. And then they said, okay, well you go, you know, and get in bed here and have a rest. So me and Lena went into the their bedroom, you know, it was really, classic fluffy lace and down comforter and you know we got into this bed and <laughs> it was pretty good <laughs> I can imagine after yeah. almost dying yeah and then I remember waking up in the afternoon and like oh fuck where, where am I <laughs> yeah. that kind of a thing must have still felt like a dream yeah, it all was really weird. It was really, but it was good. Yeah. You know, at that point, you were just so alive. I don't know if I ever been more alive. That started our 23 days with them. He said, well, we can put it out on the net and maybe we can find somebody to help salvage the boat. And, um, you know, we can uh, do that. So we started and pretty soon somebody said, oh, we'll come and help you. We got divers and this and that. And these guys came and they were like pirates. Mm. Drug addict, uh, bad teeth. And then when they got there, they doubled the rates and, okay, we'll go for it anyway. And that just started a whole thing. And we got in and we salvaged stuff. And, and they got down there before we could get down there with our diver girl, you know, because Iris was a diver. And, and they got all our money and passports and everything. And, and we salvaged the boat all day and we took off everything that was loose. It was 60 feet underwater, right? So we got all the sails and the, and the boom and the, anything from the interior that was useful, all the tools and the sewing machine. And, and we just kept piling all this stuff up on the boat. And then we took all, all of it back into the little bay where the house was and, uh, you know, kind of settled in for the evening. And, and one of the things that, that got rescued was our medical kit. And Iris was a nurse. And the medical kit had eight 30 milligram ampules of pure morphine because she could get this, you know, before we left. These guys, they got in there and 
And in the morning when we were supposed to go out and do it again, the guy who was the captain, he sticks his head up out of this hatch and his beady little eyes and uh, and then he just threw up all over the deck, <laughs> slithered back down below and one of the other guys was competent and could get us out over the dive site and we went out and salvaged more stuff. Then they left and they left with a lot of our stuff too. Right? We had a lot of it on the beach already, but they took off with a lot. And then we had another diver come. Uh, uh, you know, all, it got really complicated. Yeah. I tried to save the boat underwater, and that failed. And so then we switched the salvage to cut it up and save the expensive bronze hardware. So we got an air-powered chainsaw with a a flight. You know, all this is all happening, and I, I mean, I don't have anything. I'm wearing somebody else's clothes, you know. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> that must have been a really difficult decision to say, okay, that's the end of, of Seminole. Yeah. Well, the, the most dramatic thing in that transition was maybe the second day, even. I... I took a walk up to the cliff, right? So the house is down in the valley and I climbed up this trail and went right up to the edge of the cliff. And I was standing on the edge of the cliff and just screaming at the top of my lungs, like, uh, you know, that rage, whatever you want to call it. And then, you know, there was clouds and rain and rainbows and green and, Everything was alive. <laughs> and all of a sudden, boom, this guy tackles me. And we're rolling down the hill. And I'm like, Clive, Clive. He says, oh, mate, I thought you were going to jump off the cliff, eh? <laughs> and I said, Are you crazy? <laughs> I'm alive. I'm not jumping off the cliff. <laughs> So then we went back up and looked out and you could see the outline of the deck down under the water right where the boat was. And that's what turned the, turned the thing towards let's salvage it and make it okay again. You know. And um, you know, it ended up not happening and we ended up back in Auckland. It was my 32nd birthday and uh, went to my girlfriend's brother-in-law's house and we had dinner in this amazing dining room with china and silver and new life just like that it's obviously very vivid and emotional for you to this day what does that experience how did it inform your life going forward well, it taught me to never take anything for granted. You know, my experience with the Chinese fellow, that showed me that I better be more humble. Tell that story, if you would. Yeah, well, when we were shopping for leaving, 
you know, looking, we bought some foul weather gear and we went to the chart place and we were going to Indonesia and we had a permit to cruise in Bali and uh, it was it was a big deal. We were on our way, you know, so we wanted to go buy food. My girlfriend knew of this place in the Ponsonby district of Auckland. It was kind of like uh, the Haight-Ashbury of Auckland at the time, you know. And so we went down to this place and they had... Uh, Everything was a Chinese-run little store. And when you walked in the place, you know, it felt like you were in, now that I've been there, Hong Kong or somewhere, you know, everything's hanging and there's all kinds of stuff. And got a bag and started gathering up what I wanted and bringing it and putting it on the counter. And, and I asked the guy something and he said, you know, I guess I was pretty gruff, and I just went in, I knew what I wanted, and have you got this, have you got that? And he said, oh, wait a minute, you know, you should go outside and, and come back in again and, and, and start over because we don't do business like that here, you know. Um, I kind of chuckled at that, you know, and went about my, okay, you know. And then later, after I had gotten most of it together, I said, have you got any soy sauce? And, and he says, yeah, 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 here. And so I said, you know, can you put it from these glass containers into the plastic thing that it probably came in, you know? And so he looks at me and grabs the things and he goes in his little back room. And, and when he comes out of his little back room, he says to me, you know, the one thing I would like most is if you would get down on your hands and knees and I would take a big sword and cut your head off. Boy, that was shocking. Like, <laughs> oh, fella, well, I think I just want to pay for my stuff and get out of here. <laughs> no, thank you. And my girlfriend was saying, oh, leave it all behind, you know. Don't, don't take it. Leave it. We'll get it somewhere else. Oh, no, 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 so had a big wad of money because I'd been working and uh, paid the guy and we left. You know, I just kept thinking about this guy. Had a lot of, like, visual images of him. And we're driving across the valley in this little car and, and the windshield wipers are gone and I'm just kind of seeing his face. And, and after we left, there was a we were sitting in the cockpit and there was kind of a big glowing fireball in the sky in the evening and all I'm thinking about it's like some omen, you know, and I started talking to the, the other people like, wow, what's going on? You know, I just got this vivid thing of this guy. His name was Barry Wally. Shared the same first name. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, when the boat went down, actually sank um, it sank stern first and this big blast of kind of like vapor came out of the bow ventilator there was a ventilator on a dorade box on the bow so as the boat went down all the air gets compressed inside and it kind of blew like a whale and i just had this clear image of this guy again you know so I kept talking to these people when we got on the rocks. Hey, you know, this, what happened? Did he put a curse on us? You know, and, and what, what should we do? I mean, and, and I was into the occult and, and read a lot of odd stuff. And 
you know, I could maybe I should go get a sword and just whack him because he's my mortal enemy, or or maybe uh, I should go get a sword and give it to him and then submit myself to him, or maybe he's my teacher and I don't know, you know. So after everything was cleared up and I didn't have any more debts, I was free of the event, let's call it. And I sold all the salvage gear and had enough money to get out of New Zealand. Uh, we went back there, me and my girlfriend. And I walked in the store and he said, hello, I'm surprised to see you. I said, well, I got to ask you something. <laughs> I said, did you put a curse on me when I was in here before? And he said, of course. And so then I started talking to him like, hey, I got to talk to you and tell you about what happened. And he said, oh, well, come, don't, don't be out here with the customers, you know. So he took me in his little back room and, you know, there was a circle on the floor and, and a boar's head and antlers and a, and a bear's head on the wall and a lot of strange stuff, you know. And, and we started talking and I said, you know, I, I don't know what you're up to, uh, but if you're cursing people and you have some kind of power you don't know about, you should really sort this out because you could hurt somebody and not know it, you know? And I'm here to tell you that if you did this to me, here's what happened to me, you know? And so we talked and he said, oh yeah, you know, I've been studying magic, hanging out with people that are into magic. And he said, yeah, I've done, you know, I could see that possibly have happened. And, and then, uh, you know, we talked some more and he told me how to, to avoid the curse, what I had to do to uh, avoid the curse. Which was? Well, I had to write it down. And, and know where the written down version of it was all the time, write down the story you know, of what happened. And then there was some other thing too about, uh, didn't have anything to do with forgiveness or anything like that. It was just more like being aware of, you know, that this was something that was real and, you know, you got through it and now let it go, you know, but always keep it, somewhere close where you know you know where the the story is and okay great you know and and we're standing he's a little tiny guy you know, he's big. i'm holding his hands and we're talking for some time and then when it was kind of at the end he says you know he says i've been looking for something but i think you found it and then he just turned and walked away and I never had another word with him after that. And when I walked out his door, he didn't even look at me when I left his shop. Did you feel a, a weight lifted off your shoulder at that point? Oh yeah, it was like I knew that. I wasn't just out of my mind, you know. And yeah. life's what you believe, right? No, it was it was a weird experience. Wow. And and, and you know, it made me a different person. Not just that, but the whole thing. You know, wrecking the boat and all of a sudden having nothing. And you know, that at that moment, you you have 
you can decide. I mean, I didn't even have, I didn't have any papers, no passport, no nothing. It took me a long time to, to work that out in New Zealand, to be able to get a, a new passport so I could travel. And you had to start all over. Yeah, I had to start completely over. When I got back to Maui, I had 52 US dollars and my sextant and my binoculars and some clothes that would fit in a bag with that. And that was it. Well, you've had a whole nother set of adventures since landing in Maui. And I am excited to talk to you about those. But I think we're going to do that in part two of the podcast here. So thank you for yeah, yeah. thank you very much for sharing the, that story. Yeah, that's uh, an incredible story, and obviously one that had a huge impact. On you. Yeah, well, it, it could be uh, interesting, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I told you Barry had some pretty crazy stories. If you enjoyed those stories and want to know more, you can read all about that in more detail in Barry's book called The Bear Chronicles. It's composed mainly of letters that Barry sent back to his mom during that trip through the South Pacific. Barry's mom saved all those letters and Barry then found them and reconstructed them into a book. It's at the public library, I know, because I checked it out there and read it. But you can also buy a copy at Barry's website, which is barryspanier.com, B-A-R-R-Y-S-P-A-N-I-E-R.com. Next week, I'll talk with Barry about his sailmaking career and the new boat he's building in Berkeley, plus his ideas for cleaning up plastic pollution in the ocean. He's got some pretty interesting ideas about how to go about that. Thanks for listening to Out the Gate. I'm your host and producer, Ben Shaw. Until next week, smooth sailing.